Hello and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, the Gender and Sexuality Editor at LARB, and I'm joined in the studio today by LARB's Managing Editor, Medea Ocher, and LARB Editor-at-Large, Kate Wolf. Hi, Medea and Kate. Hi, this is Medea. <laughs> and this is Kate. Hi. <laughs> Did I hey, do Eric. something wrong? <laughs> no. You're making me feel like I got your names wrong. Okay. Say the uh, names right. Today. <laughs> today we... <laughs> I'll, I'll be going by Kate. <laughs> Lots going on this show today, guys. We have our brand new intro music, which you should have already heard and we're really excited about. That's right. That is thanks to Imogen Teasley, who is a young composer, and she composed this just for this show. And she's an incredible talent, and we're so excited to feature her music before we talk to people. <laughs> Before and after our show. Before and during, too. And during. Perhaps. And yeah. during. We could just change the show to just that song. It's 360 degrees of Imogen Teasley. Yes. Okay, outside of our exciting new music, we also have a doubleheader conversation. First up, we have a conversation with writer Ben Marcus about his latest book, the short story collection Notes from the Fog. After the break, we'll return with a conversation between LARB senior editor Evan Kinley and journalist Brian Phillips, author of the new collection of essays, Impossible Owls. All right, without further ado, let's get to it. We have Ben Marcus in the studio with us today. Ben Marcus is the author of four books of fiction, The Age of Wire and String, Notable American Women, The Flame Alphabet, and Leaving the Sea, and the editor of two short story anthologies, The Anchor Book of New American Short Stories and New American Stories. His fiction has appeared in Bomb, Granta, Harper's Magazine, McSweeney's, The New Yorker, The Paris Review, and The Virginia Quarterly Review. His latest book is called Notes from the Fog. It's a collection of 13 short stories. Ben, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Okay, so we're going to ask you to read a little bit. Okay, sure. Would you tell us what story you're going to read from? Yeah, maybe I'll read the opening paragraph from the title story, Notes from the Fog. Okay. My wife, Jin, once knocked gently on my head as if it were a door. Hello, she kept saying. Hello, who's in there? She and our therapist, Dr. Sherby, laughed a little about this. So I did, too. What fun. Keep knocking on my head like that, like it's a door or an egg. I wasn't going to be the only one not laughing. That's Human Survival 101. Not that survival is such a prize, but still, you might as well control your exit. Put your own little spin on how you step away from the show once and for all. I laughed as Jin kept knocking on my head, and I said as if I might really be answering the door, Just a minute. I'm coming. Hold your horses. No need to break the house down. That's great. Thank you. Thank you. Sure. That opening paragraph brings to mind the first question that I have for you about this book, which, by the way, is truly excellent. I really... Thank we had you. so much fun. Thank I had so much so fun. Much. I, that sounds like we read it together. We didn't. <laughs> but I had so much fun reading it. It's very funny. It's a sign for kids' parties. It's, <laughs> it just, it's fun. It's a fun book. People have fun. It, it struck me, I think maybe the third story in or so, that the overarching theme of the book, as far as I could tell, was the impossibility of knowing the people around you mm. and the people closest to you. Mm. And this instance, right, where a wife knocks on the head of her husband and says, who's in there, really almost literally performs that. that. Yeah, I think that does seem to come up. And when you say overarching theme, I kind of back away because I'd love to think there isn't one. And what that probably is to me is a set of limitations or things I just seem to return to. And, And I think when I put stories together, I want there to be conflict, some tension, some turbulence, obstacles, that sort of thing, because otherwise I think there's nothing to read for. And it seems what I notice after the fact is that I try to find that conflict between people. And Mm. conflict seems often really organically just to come out of misunderstanding or incomprehension between people. So, yeah, I think I'm pretty guilty of that. (laughs) So when you're writing the stories, is that how do you, because there's a lot of swerving in these stories, unexpected turns that Mm. happen. And so is that something that you're starting off in a story and then suddenly you feel like, okay, I've got to 
push this? I got to make this go somewhere unexpected. I think after the fact, it's what I would say I was doing, but probably at the moment, I'm not so aware of that. I think I instinctually look to overturn whatever there is happening, whatever the comfort is to try to kind of topple it, but not in a really controlling way. Because I I think a little bit about plot and suspense and momentum and why we keep reading, right? You might read something, it's a nice first page, but you could go get a sandwich or get something to drink. And so what is it that makes us keep reading? And I, I think for me, that's involved really thinking about what I like to read and what draws me in, what makes me want to read rather than do anything else in the world. And that has to do with, I guess it's a long way of saying that to me, plot is also just change. Something changes and change can be really big or it can be really small. And so I think I am probably trying to change whatever the little status quo is in the story. If something sort of seems okay, then it's going to not be okay. But then it goes the other way too. So I don't want to just get into a gloomy, dour place. And so I try to flip it back into something a little more, I don't know, upbeat. I think I do that less. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. But a little bit. I mean, there's a story here about a woman's sister yeah. passing away. Right. It's got a happy ending. Kind of. Sort of, right? <laughs> yeah. She goes yeah. into that story really not liking boys <laughs> or people. And suddenly she's a guardian, kind of a willing one and sort of a protective one. I worried about that, though, because that's kind of a big change, right? Is that plausible? There's a lot of big changes in that story. I mean, not yeah. huge, but, you know, oh, that's she right. starts what she does sleeping with her. with her. Sleeping. And, you know, yeah. I think that it's so interesting in these stories because it's like the language is so heightened that things that might seem like strange plot twists or unbelievable. I mean, I was actually going to ask you, would you say... Do you think of yourself as a surreal writer? Because that's a word that seems to be associated with you a lot, but I don't know how surreal know. the plot is. But I know. You know, I mean, technically, if you think about actual surrealism in history, I would say sort of absolutely not. But I think that that word has been used to describe a certain kind of American fiction that might traffic a little more in the uncanny or oddity, a little bit of fantastical or dystopic stuff. But I don't think of that as actual surrealism. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, it's not really my debate. You know, I think like I understand why that term is used. It's a kind of helpful shorthand for like, well, this is not domestic realism. Right. Although that story sort of is domestic. You know, the first story in the collection yeah, also. That's right. It has the air of uncanny, but it's completely. Yeah, it's a story of, of a yeah. family with a problem. I mean, that's like a lot of Alice Monroe stories. Not that I'm comparing myself to her, but I am sort of interested, I think, because I started out writing much more obviously fantastical stuff. And. I have found that it's interesting for me to try to sometimes really suppress that and see what happens because I think some of those tones of the fantastical can still come through in a realistic story. And I'm really interested in that. And I can't say I quite understand that feeling. Mm -hmm. There's a writer I love who does that too named Saeed Sarafizadeh. He wrote a book of stories called Brief Encounters with the Enemy. And they're, for the most part, kind of realistic, but you have this feeling that it's all unreal. I think Ishiguro does that as a writer, too. It's just an interesting tone to me. It seems hard to achieve. Yes. God knows. I don't know how to do it. You do know how to do it. You (laughs) You actually do it it really well. I guess I don't know how to describe doing it. Right. Well, I mean, that's okay. One of the things that struck me about that first story, and I've been telling people about that first story because it really struck me aside from being a perfectly wonderful story, Cold Little Bird, right? Yeah. Yeah. And just to describe it to listeners, it's about a family, as you said, sort of suddenly facing a challenge, which is that their 10-year-old son has grown cold and distant and almost a stranger to them. He tells them he doesn't love them anymore and he doesn't need their affection. Right. So it's interesting to me that you talk about the uncanny because you really do achieve it really nicely because the son appears to be the son they've always known. Yeah. He looks like the son they've known. He mm-hmm. looks like a baby. He looks like a child. Yeah. And yet he's behaving in ways that are completely not those things. Yeah. He's suddenly kind of rational in a way that's really disarming and threatening. Yeah. And then he is caught reading a 9-11 
truth or book, (laughs) (laughs) which is very funny. So something that I was wondering is, do you sometimes feel that disconnect personally between something that should be familiar and known? You mean just in my my life, life. do normal things feel strange? (laughs) Yeah, or sometimes I do, and maybe this is a question for both you and Kate, but do you fear the strangeness of your children (laughs) or the strangeness of your other loved ones? Well, I have a nine-year-old son and a 14-year-old daughter, and in some sense that story is the opposite of what I've experienced, but it could also be kind of a great fear because there is really no guarantee that this kind of intense supply of love will keep getting ladled over you as you parent. And so I think I'm aware of how tenuous it is. It just seems so almost, I don't know, miraculous that these little creatures can show love. And then they can be suddenly, they, speaking about all children now, (laughs) I'm just going to (laughs) generalize. That's fine. They can just be shockingly rational, you know, for little moments. And And they're testing out ways of being. And also children test their parents all the time. I did. You know, it seems that in general it can be safe to be your worst self around your parents because you will always be forgiven. Not always, but in general you see kids acting out more with their parents than out in public. It's funny to see my kids sort of suddenly get their shit together in public and be cool when they've really not (laughs) been being cool in private. So at first that story existed as a paragraph for about a year where oh. just there was a couple tucking their kid into bed and he's just like, you know, I don't love you anymore. And so it just, it stuck with me. I knew I was scared of it. I was scared of what it represented, but I didn't, I really didn't want him to be unrealistic or monstrous. And so it took me a long time to figure out how to calibrate a story like that. So it stayed as kind of plausible and real as possible. And I just didn't really know how to do that. But, you know, I would say I have luckily not had to experience that. I mean, certainly in my life, I've had plenty of people tell me they don't love me anymore. So just not my children. (laughs) Luckily. (laughs) I think the father's overreaction in the story, too, that there's this very sensible, level-headed wife who keeps Mm. things together. But then the father's pushing of his child is actually the thing that amplifies. Yes. The child is reasonable. The father is actually acting kind of unreasonably. It's a nice balance that contrasts it well. Well, it's funny you say that because some people and people have reacted really differently to that story. And some think, well, this kid's clearly getting abused or, you know, if only the father were nicer, it wouldn't happen. And I suppose one thing that interested me was a situation where the parent's behavior just might not even matter, right? You can flail in the background and have a tantrum about this stuff and freak out, but it's not going to change the problem. And so since the story is kind of wedged into the father's head, it's third person close, you get to see his undoing and unraveling around it all Mm -hmm. and his kind of struggle to realize that he can't control the situation. And then, of course, it shows the dilemma of co-parenting a challenging kid. And has accurate, I thought, very accurate description of marriage. Oh. The fact-checking. Yeah. I laughed a lot. I read <laughs> Thank it, you. I read it to my husband, actually. We both laughed. Oh, yeah. This story really brings couples together. <laughs> <laughs> so true. Because if you say that's accurate, that's sort of... That's saying a lot about marriage. I mean, or it's maybe that's just a saying a lot about no, my personal I mean, marriage. But relationships you know, in general, the way yeah. you... Just can yeah. tally. Yeah. You get very attached to other people's mistakes sometimes, and then you become a connoisseur of them, mm. as you well pointed yeah. out. I think I do return to that, the tensions in marriage or in couples a lot. And I think there, I was just hoping that the fact of this child would also kind of soften some of that stuff mm-hmm. or maybe make it more complicated. Oh, I think it did. Yeah. I yeah. wanted to ask you, I know this is a question that women writers get asked often, but because there's I think that you deal with children in kind of a interesting way here. How has being a father changed your fiction, do you think, or changed your grasp of human experience? I'd like to think a lot because I think being a father has changed me a lot. It's always really hard to tabulate actual changes as a writer. When my son was born, I started to write my novel, The Flame Alphabet, which is also about, well, it's about children whose language will kind of deteriorate and destroy the adults around them. And and again, that was an experience of something almost like an 
opposite to what I was experiencing. But having children has just shown me a lot about how much more we have to lose once we have children, right? It's very hard to, I don't know, people, always, like I have friends who don't have kids and they say, should I have kids, should I have not? And I'm like, I, you know, I don't know, if you want to. <laughs> like, I don't think there's good sort of conventional or generic wisdom about it. But when Heidi, my wife, and I were talking about having kids, it was really easy to kind of enumerate the potential challenges of it, the loss of time, and to break it all down in a really mechanistic way. But the thing neither of us were even capable of imagining or even knew to imagine was what it would be like to kind of be desperately in love with a new creature. You can't project yourself into that space and know what that's like. And I'm not saying that this is a reason to do it or not. But so anyway, once that happens, and then you know, you spend at least part of the day worried about what might happen to them. For me, that really affected my emotional life because I think I, I fantasize about loss a lot in some ways or I'm paranoid about loss or I'm afraid of loss. And so that was just this whole new territory of it. And, you know, and I'm interested in the power we give children or the power they have themselves. It's hard to say, you know, I think the older I've gotten and the older my kids have gotten, the more I sort of think... I just, as much as I've tried to, have played almost no role in their deep personalities. They just really are who they are. So I think it has kind of maybe revealed to me just bigger emotional territory, ways in which I can explore characters being tested, going through struggles, and that is the sort of thing that interests me. So I'd like to think it's opened some stuff up. You mentioning the power dynamic really feels apt to me because so much of that first story and a few of the others is about a sudden reversal of power, Yeah, right? Where one person should have it. Mm. The father should have it in this relationship with his son, right? That is naturally, at least in some senses or in the most traditional sense, yeah. where the power should lie. And yet suddenly, just by this very simple gesture where the son says, sorry, don't love you anymore, yeah. it almost totally switches. Yeah, well... The parents can have power. I think the kid, Jonah, in that story points out, like, they can set rules for him, but they can't say you have to love us. And I think right. it's almost as if they've discovered this conundrum. It's like a category outside of the normal things a parent provides in terms of structure and rules. And so, I don't know, it seems a little like a new space where he's like, yes, you know, I'll go to bed at bedtime and I'll do my schoolwork and I'll do the things I have to do. But you can't right. tell me I actually have to cuddle with you and like love you. And I think that's shocking to the father character because it's right. You know, I think Jonah's actually correct, however horrible that is. Right. It does put the reader in a funny position in some ways because... Jonah also flips the power dynamic in terms of the larger power dynamic, right? He's, I don't know if he's permanently this way, but he briefly becomes a 9-11 truther. He says the Jews did it, right? Okay. That Jonah also switches the sort of larger power dynamic, right, where he's suddenly positions himself against the standard holders of power, which is the government, what the government tells us, right? And so he becomes this little kind of reactionary yeah. little figure. Mm. And it's funny because you're right in some ways the reader should position themselves with this child who's asserting his rights, his interests, himself as a person. But then the father's reaction completely makes sense <laughs> yeah. because he totally flips out. I wonder how you thought of, maybe you didn't, but how you thought of politics at large mm. within that story. That's actually a really good question. And the 9-11 thing happened really almost by accident, but it gets back to something we were talking a little bit about earlier with I guess, suspense and plot and how a story might grow and why you continue after one page. And Because one thing I think a lot about is, I guess, what I think of as escalation. So you have a story and it might kind of introduce a dilemma, but you can't just sort of leave it there. So, And in this story, the question was, how does a dilemma like this possibly escalate without being preposterous? And that wasn't exactly consciously on my mind, but I think I was just nudging things towards that. And it seemed that within Jonah's rational approach to the world, there would have to be some kind of new facet or a new manifestation of this coldness. And I think I just suddenly had him reading this book. 
And, you know, when you say he became a 9-11 truther, like, I guess the way I see it is, well, he had the book, and mm-hmm. he's reading the book, and those books, well, not that I exactly really know, but there's this kind of faux authority to them, right? If you spend a lot of time on YouTube watching conspiracy theorists, which I sort of do, you know, it's interesting how they have the appurtenances of, like, an authoritative lecturer or professor type. Yeah. And so I like the idea that he was just saying, well, you know, you told us to have an open <laughs> mind. And he's kind of, in essence, presenting the parental guidelines back to his father. But maybe because his father has been already so worn down from the lovelessness, he kind of no longer can abide it. Yeah. And there are these things you do have to tolerate as a parent and be patient with. And maybe on a different day with a loving child, if the kid asks mm-hmm. about conspiracy theories with 9-11, you're more patient. And so I think I was just wondering, well, now that his patience is going, what happens? And so suddenly the conflict to me wasn't Jonah and his problem and his coldness and his lovelessness or even Jonah's 9-11 truth or fascination. It was the father losing control and becoming nearly threatening. And I liked the idea of the problem shifting, even though the original problem is still there. But now there's kind of a new problem, and his wife is super not happy with him for that. And it's almost like she's more unhappy with him than about whatever Jonah's doing. And so that, to me, was just a chance to kind of almost like diversify the conflict. Mm -hmm. So there's more trouble. It's like, how do you make more trouble within the terms of the story, though? Because when I talk about this with students, you could make more trouble by having the house hit by a meteor, but that (laughs) has very little dramatic weight. Yeah. I was talking to somebody about the story and that you had mentioned that you wanted to keep it realistic. And somebody, whoever this person was, I can't remember, were like, it's Stephen Miller. It's it's, it's the story of Stephen Miller, right? I was like, this nice... Most of my stories are about (laughs) Stephen Miller. (laughs) That's horrifying. I mean, it's obvious. (laughs) Yeah, it's like a nice Jewish boy growing up in Santa Monica who suddenly turns. Oh, the boy is Stephen. I thought you were thinking of the dad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, 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 the boy. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah, it's really hard to imagine what happens next for him. Mm. Yes. But yeah, Stephen Miller. He's very bright. Smart. So very smart. But is he really... Stephen Miller, no. Uh, yeah. No. Has the current political situation just, I'm sure it hasn't been. Wait, what's been oh, going the, on? <laughs> oh, I, maybe not today. I've been but, on a plane. Okay, sorry. Not today. The last year and a half or two years. But, I'm, I'm obsessed with it. I'm yeah, how a do massive you, consumer of it. And I'm thinking a lot about the role of fiction with this and wondering really where the fiction writers are in relation to this material. I remember after the actual 9-11 I don't know, within days, there was this kind of, I don't know, novelists were getting questions like, what does the novelist do now? And is fiction irrelevant? And one of the things you often heard was, well, fiction percolates. It's not, you know, in the news cycle. And then there, you know, have been sort of really interesting 9-11 novels, either closely focused on it or pursuing it ancillarily. But I know somebody who is writing what he just calls a Donald Trump novel. So I... Hmm. But I I am really curious, given how much oxygen all this material is taking, what it is doing to the imagination of the fiction writer. And I think, though, it's just it's revealed slowly, right? You don't see fiction trying. And I don't really know why, but you don't see fiction readily trying to tackle this stuff kind of quickly. Or I don't know. Do you all see that? No, I mean, I think it's I do think it's a difficult task for fiction, partly because it takes it's not a poem where you might write it and yeah. read it the same night at yeah. a reading or something. Well, it's it, tough, it makes certain fiction also make a lot more sense to me. Like mm. now I read Philip K. Dick and I just think, oh yeah, he got it. This yeah. is real. This that's is right. real. Writing like, about authoritarianism. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Science oh, fiction right. seems real to me in a way or so apt or yeah. applicable in a way it hasn't. But it, I think the news cycle can also just, it can really crush your imagination as yeah. a reader. Just when, that... Right. And I was talking to a book editor who said, you know, this is the typical statement, like no one's buying books, even like big kind of more easily entertaining summer beach read books, like sales are way down because everyone is just living and breathing off of the news cycle and that it's just so rich and complex and fascinating and dirty and weird and and it seems like life or death, right? In other words, it's just like delivering the properties of 
scary, realistic entertainment, entertainment in the sort of darker sense. Right, and yeah. I don't know, is that an explicit challenge to fiction writers? Should it be? Should it? And I think people will react differently. It's on my mind a lot. I haven't really seen it come out so directly. But I have had days when I've felt a little almost like evasive if I'm kind of manufacturing an imaginary world with some difficulties in them and thinking, hmm, is there something... I often feel it's irrelevant and inessential, but I'm feeling that a little more and wondering if that's connected to what's mm. going on. I mean, one of the things that I have been thinking, at least in terms of the relationship between fiction and current politics, is it's rare that we have a compelling narrative in politics. Like, mm. we have the standard sort of cliche narratives of an American dream or a person making good or et cetera. But this we have usually for narrative junkies or plot junkies politics is not the place to right. go, right? right? But suddenly we have this whole thing that just begs to be narrativized and nobody will let us, kind of, because we have, well, allegedly this happened, allegedly this person contacted this person, allegedly there was some connection here, right? And so there's this very careful narrative building, but for those who seek narrative, it can be really compelling. Yeah. It's a potboiler, right? It's totally a potboiler, Yeah. Yeah, and I think even the, you know, when you say fiction can't keep up with the news cycle, the news can't keep up with the news cycle. Right, yeah. Also, right. it's super fascinating. One of the things that interests me a lot is that when something new and atrocious happens, I always run into certain people who say, well, that's it. That's the tipping point. And, and now things will yeah. somehow kind of rectify or there'll be some clarity. It's in a really abstract way, very impressive that you could be suspended in that feeling for such a long time. Right. That, like, right before the denouement, like, that tension that the culture, the political culture, is manufacturing that really narrative experience and keeping it in a space where you keep thinking, tomorrow, you know, this shit is all going to kind of coalesce. And that's sort of interesting. You know, I've stopped thinking that, that you know, any some new horrible thing or this op-ed is just going to change anything because it just, yeah, it's almost like physically unsustainable to feel the pressure behind all this stuff. Something that I also wanted to ask you about regarding the book is it seems like a lot of the stories, and I'm sorry to keep noticing overarching themes, That's all right. that they deal with some form of loss or death, either sort of on mass scale. There's a story about a couple trying to figure out a plan for a public yeah, the memorial, architects, yeah. the architects. And then the story that we mentioned earlier where this woman goes to take care of her dead sister's family. Yeah, the boys. Right. So yeah. it's a much smaller scale loss uh, in that case. Story with the father's death. and Oh, right. yeah. And so high it, body it keeps, count. It's a high body <laughs> count, yeah. And it's funny because the architects also actually sort of, they text about What's the body count of this of the tragedy that they're going to be memorializing? Is there something in, I mean, you were saying how fiction, perhaps you're not sure how fit it is to deal with the current politics. Is there a ways in which fiction, I mean, it seems like this is right or true, helps deal with loss or conceptualize death in some way that makes it more manageable? Is that something that you look for fiction to do? I don't know if it's a therapeutic function or if it makes it more manageable. I mean, I, I don't know that death can be made more manageable. Mm -hmm. I mean, to me, it seems essentially permanently unmanageable. And that's what is so attractive about it. The characters in the book are also, there's a lot of ambivalence towards death. These losses happen and there's no hysterics. It's like it's taken very evenly, right? Are you thinking of something specifically with the sister? Sister, yeah. then also with the in the story where this guy goes to get his father's ashes. He's a little like annoyed, like, oh, yeah, God, right. I got to go to California, get my dad's yeah. ashes. Yeah. And he ends up hooking up with his dad's mistress. I don't know, yeah, not well, that, to yeah, give that, away the plot. But I know, what a sorry. spoiler. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> that one, I think, was in some ways, I think I had written a pretty heavy story right before that. And, you know, I think one of the things I'm wary of in fiction is if something something heavy happens to if you have the characters sitting around wringing their hands it can really feel melodramatic right if you if you take something kind of objectively horrible and then do a lot of reaction shots it can feel really inert dramatically so i think that's why the stranger by camus was so powerful in that 
mother died today or was it yesterday? That, that indifference and detachment can actually seem sort of chilling. And, you know, I think in the opening of The Boys, the sister says, you know, my sister died and I had to go deal with her stupid kids. I think there's this little bit where she says she didn't react and might never react, but that didn't mean she didn't love her. And I think there's an effort to show in maybe a subtler, more organic way how serious that is and how much love and attachment there can be. Yeah, without being explicit and heavy-handed about it. And in that story you're talking about, George and Elizabeth, yeah, it is just, I suppose I wasn't going to be interested unless he was maybe really cavalier because that seemed really foreign to me. Like when I wrote that, I was just like, what a weird way to react. But I don't know. I had run into somebody whose one of his parents had died. And he was, you know, clearly kind of posturing at a little bit of indifference because there had been almost no relationship there. Mm -hmm. And so I suppose I just, I like to explore something and see if there's something there, right? Because in that story, George and Elizabeth, hopefully over time, you get at more vulnerability around that character, even though he's erected these defenses. Mm -hmm. So it isn't, really a statement about death and death not being a big deal, but rather maybe an effort to show how differently people do try to deal with it. Something that I also wanted to ask you is, well, you had written novels before, obviously, and this is a collection of short stories. And you were telling us earlier that you're going to be teaching a class called the state of the art of the short story. Yeah. How do you approach writing a short story versus, let's say, something like a novel or just in general, when you sit down to... You know, just crossing my fingers. Yeah. <laughs> because it's it's hard and it rarely works out in that I, you know, I think I'm just looking for a sentence, a paragraph, a moment, some th- sort of promise, the feeling that there's something there. And so I, I can generate a lot of material. I can write things down. And part of the problem is looking at them and feeling overly diagnostic in advance and understanding in advance why there's no promise there at all or being too aware of all my own tendencies and seeing exactly, knowing exactly what I'm going to do and not caring enough to do it because I'm not like providing food for soldiers in a war or anything. There's simply no demand for this, like no actual demand. So I have to, I think, put myself into a pretty complicated state of delusion that involves also just really wanting to see something through, wanting to get at stuff. And that's why maybe sometimes the stories are a little more sordid or dark or disturbing because I think whatever else it is, at first I have to, I think, entertain myself. I have to take myself through an experience that feels worthwhile. Not that it actually is, but for the moment it has to feel that way. Well, we should wrap it up. Yes, we should. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thank you. We've been speaking with Ben Marcus. His latest book is a collection of short stories. It's called Notes from the Fog. Thank you so much, Ben. Thank you. You've been listening to our conversation with Ben Marcus, author of Notes from the Fog, on the LARB Radio Hour, recorded at KPFK in sunny Studio City. We now turn to a conversation between LARB senior editor Evan Kinley and Brian Phillips, author of Impossible Owls. Hello, I'm Evan Kindley, Senior Humanities Editor at the Los Angeles Review of Books. Today, I'm talking with my friend Brian Phillips. For years, Brian has been one of the best long-form nonfiction writers in the game. His work has appeared in Grantland, where he was a staff writer, The New York Times, The New Yorker, MTV News, and, of course, the Los Angeles Review of Books. His first collection of essays has just been published by Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. It's called Impossible Owls. Colson Whitehead says of it, Again and again, Impossible Owls proves that Brian Phillips is a cultural codebreaker of the highest order, unlocking the hidden systems of our mad world. Brian, hello. Hello, Evan. Let's break some codes. Let's do it. So I wanted to start by asking you, um, you've had a kind of an unusual career as a journalist mm. uh, in that you seem to have mostly avoided having a beat. You've, you've written about sports quite a bit, you've written about soccer and tennis, but over the years, you've covered a pretty wide variety of subjects, and we'll touch on a few of them that are in your collection. 
And I'd say your work has a very distinctive sensibility, but it's hard to pigeonhole you as even a specific kind of writer, uh, you know, a critic or a sports writer or a travel writer mm. or a memoirist. So if you want to just tell us, tell us a little bit about your career as a writer and how you get from, say, blogging about soccer, which I think is, you know, kind of where you got your start, to writing about Area 51 or Queen Elizabeth or these other far-flung subjects you've written about. Yeah, I, I guess my career has been marked by several inflection points defined by arbitrariness and terror. I have started out doing one thing, done it sort of intensely for a while, and then freaked out or panicked and started <laughs> suddenly doing something else. Uh, out, out of college, I was writing um, literary criticism mostly. I wrote a lot of poetry criticism and book reviews and that kind of thing. In about 2007, I was becoming kind of disenchanted with, with doing that and started blogging about soccer, which at that time was just a complete escapist hobby for me, you know, doing it in a very amateurish way, but I was letting myself have have a lot of fun doing it. People started reading the blog, and I started writing a column about soccer for Slate. And then uh, when ESPN launched Grantland, they brought me in to write about all kinds of sports. While I was at Grantland, I started covering more cultural um, topics. Also, I started writing about movies Uh, occasionally about books. And then after Grantland went down in flames, uh, (laughs) uh, another another inflection point of despair, uh, I I got hired by MTV News and really did a, a crazy variety of topics for them. I wrote about aliens and the American Southwest and the UFO phenomenon and, uh, piece that's in the book about a a Russian animator who had spent 37 years working on the same film. So yeah, and then this this past summer, I wrote about the World Cup for the New Yorker, so kind of went back to sports. Right. So you'd like to sort of immerse yourself deeply in a subject for a period of time, but then you just find yourself wanting to move on or? I I guess that's right. Yeah. I think that I have a a somewhat obsessive personality and am also um, not necessarily easily bored, but eventually totally bored, if that makes sense. (laughs) Um, You know, I I got completely obsessed for a while with the British royal family and read every British royal family book and article and watched all the documentaries, was really down a royal family rabbit hole, not entirely knowing why. And I wrote an essay about that and then was happy to, at that point, to move on to something else. Yeah, I wanted to talk to you about that piece, actually. So that's that's called Once in Future Queen. It's in the book. And it's the being published for the first time in the book, right? That's right. And I, I guess I was surprised by what seems to me the um, not only the, the, the sort of information, density of information, but the genuine depth of feeling you seem to have for the royal family. Or or I don't know, maybe you don't. Maybe it was was sort of a, a performance or a projection. But uh, I was wondering whether, you know, what you attributed that to. I mean, it, it seems as if you are writing that piece. It's one of the ones that's not really written from a first-person perspective, right? right? It's right. not Brian Phillips yes. talking to us. It feels as if it's you know, I would imagine a lot of people, would, if they didn't know, would expect it was written by a British subject or someone who could kind of access that kind oh, of Oh, interesting, interesting. So I just, I guess I was wondering, you know, what, how, did you feel that as you were writing? You said you, you became bored of it, but while you were working on it, did you feel the kind of emotion for the queen that you think her subjects feel? I, I don't think I felt the kind of emotion for the queen that her, her subjects feel or that she would probably like them to feel. I was, if I could vote against monarchy in all its forms. I would, of course, vote against monarchy in all of its forms. I was kind of glad while I was working on that piece that I didn't have the power to vote against <laughs> against the British no, royal it- family. I think what what I would say about that is that I was deeply curious about what it is like to be a person in the role that they occupy, which is such a, such a profoundly strange and in many ways... Um, kind of destructive and twisted role. Mm. I hope that I hope that some of the critique of the system comes comes through in what I also hope is basically a sympathetic account of these uh, human beings. I think. Yeah, and I should be clear. I mean, it, it's not a it, it, right. I mean, it, there, there's obviously a kind of hero worship of the royal family that I don't. I don't think your your piece displays that. I hope not. Yeah, it's, it seems like you're treating them as people. I guess. Yeah, it just it just seemed that you really kind of access some kind of reservoir of feeling, right, about not only those individuals but sort of what the institution represents. It was interesting to think about the royal family in the immediate aftermath of the 2016 presidential election, which is when I was writing that mm. piece. At that time, I was really struck by the fact that 
in a country where the head of the executive branch and the head of state are the same person after an election like like the one that put Trump into office, we can really wake up and feel like we're in a different country. Everything is different. The rules are different. The entire cultural atmosphere feels different. Mm-hmm. So I was thinking about the ways in which having a royal family, while this is obviously kind of poisonous way to achieve this goal, it does offer some sort of uh, stability or bulwark or reservoir of national identity that lasts through changes of administration and that would, to some small degree, inoculate you against someone like Trump just totally changing the parameters of reality in the way that, that he did. I also thought about that piece as really kind of an experiment in um, perspective writing. Mm. I tried to write as much of it as I could, not actually inhabiting the point of view of of a British royal, but I tried to stick very closely to what I imagined their sort of thoughts and feelings would be. So yeah, there was was a a, a mishmash of things happening in that piece that kind of formed it all all at once. Yeah, it feels very novelistic in terms of the perspective, Mm. like it's inside and outside at the same time. Have you you ever written fiction or... or, or I have never published fiction. <laughs> right, right. Uh, I, I would. I have written and enjoyed writing fiction, but um, no, I haven't. Haven't really successfully written fiction. I don't think. Well, I wanted to ask you about a couple of your. There's a a, a few pieces. Maybe about half the book seems like somehow travel based. Mm, right. It's yeah. kind of based around some kind of trip you took. And uh, so I wanted to ask you about a few of those. A few of those pieces. A few of those. Those expeditions. One is uh, your your trip to Alaska to follow the Iditarod uh, Trail sled dog race. Yes. So this is something you did for Grantland. Was this so? How did this come about? Was this suggested by your editors at Grantland, or was it something you you suggested, or something? Is this a phenomenon you had been interested in before? So yeah, that was a kind of odd story. The genesis of that story was odd. I had come back from covering Wimbledon for Grantland in 2012, and. Bill Simmons, who was who was you know the founder and editor in chief of Grantland, sent me an email saying he had liked what I'd done with Wimbledon and asking what my dream travel pieces were. Right, which is a lovely email for a writer sure. to get. Yes, <laughs> particularly a writer for a website that at that point had um, kind of just come into a pretty sizable um, budget. So I was um, at my parents' place in Oklahoma visiting at that point. And I kind of went around the room and, you know, like asked my my mom and dad and my wife, what should I say are my dream travel assignments? And they just thought of like really strange things that I hadn't necessarily <laughs> thought about. The Iditarod, I think, came from me because I did have this kind of longstanding fixation on the Arctic and uh, that sort of the idea of like the end of the map and that, you know, I'd wanted to, for a long time to write about the Franklin Expedition where the, you know, the ships vanished in the 1840s without a trace but my dad said I should go write about the national finals rodeo in Las Vegas. And someone suggested I should I should think about writing about sumo wrestling. Which you eventually both, did. Both of which things I eventually did, yeah. yeah. So yeah, I, I just sent Bill Simmons a, a list of possible travel destinations. And I think uh, over the next three years or so, I think we did all of them. So you mentioned the sumo piece. That was another one I wanted to ask mm. you about. You traveled to Japan. That one really interested me. I mean, it, it is sort of ostensibly about sumo wrestling, or yes. it is about sumo wrestling. There's also quite a lot of material about um, the Japanese writer Yukio Mishima. Mishima, yeah. Uh, Mishima. So I was just curious how that came about. I mean, is that do, do you go going in knowing that you're going to link those things, or did that emerge sort of in the course of research? Or how, how do you end up bringing Mishima into this story about sumo wrestling? So, yeah, that, that emerged really organically and so kind of perfectly over the course of those three weeks that I was in Japan that it seemed kind of not foreordained because I was I was making a lot of strange choices to make certain things happen, but at least kind of surreal, I guess. I went to Japan with no intention of writing about Mishima or thinking about his suicide. While I was on the plane, I was reading his novel, uh, Runaway Horses, uh, which is a volume in his uh, Sea of Fertility tetralogy. Because I had been reading this, this novel, I was just kind of like idly flipping through... Um, you know, websites about Mishima and his Wikipedia page almost while I was sitting in the the sumo arena. Of course, Mishima died in this kind of spectacular, uh, melodramatic suicide in which he he led a group of young men to take a Japanese general hostage in a theatrical attempt to stage a coup and overthrow the government of Japan and, and return Japan to its imperial roots, I guess. When Mishima uh, committed 
ritual suicide, he had stabbed himself in the in the abdomen after it was obvious that his coup had failed. And it was the job of one of the young men to decapitate him, which is the, I think Mishima's suicide is still the last instance of seppuku, like formally recorded in Japan. So I got kind of oddly interested in the idea of this young man who had kind of unexpectedly been called upon to decapitate, you know, a perennial contender for the Nobel Prize for Literature and just started wondering what had happened to him. Mm-hmm. So as I was stayed in Japan for the next two or three weeks, I spent less and less time following the, the sumo tournament I was ostensibly there to cover and started trying to find out what had happened to this guy, which over time I was I was able to do. And I eventually found him living just down the hill, about a five-minute walk away from the castle whose burning or the, an attack on which had been the kind of dramatic fulcrum of Runaway Horses, the Mishima novel I was reading on the plane. So mm-hmm. it was it was kind of a kind of a lyrical structure. <laughs> right. I didn't have to do anything to, <laughs> to create. You just came upon it. Yes, exactly. I mean, I was interested too in, in that essay, sort of a one example of, of a structure that seems to kind of recur in a few of these essays where mm. you'll have a kind of contemporary subject or place and then it's almost haunted by this this figure from the past. Like there's there'll be this this figure, historical figure, um, that you know you you kind of research almost in parallel to the contemporary mm. story. You're, you're, yes. So there's Mishima in your essay on seeing tigers in India. You talk a lot about this hunter Jim Corbett, and um, in your essay, the Oklahoma essay, but not like your typical love story. You have mm-hmm. this woman Lydie Marlin. So uh, we can get into those specific uh, examples, but I just curious whether you were sort of aware of this as, you know, kind of a, a structural device that you seem to gravitate towards. Yeah, I mean, I've never I've never thought of it as in quite such concrete terms, I guess. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've never thought time to spin out another one of those <laughs> historical figure intertwined with travel writing narratives. Yeah. But I am really interested when I'm doing travel writing in the history of place and particularly interested in kind of problematizing the history of place. Mm-hmm through those sorts of those sorts of narratives i guess so uh, jim corbett in the in the india essay was a lens through which i could sort of talk about the really uh, disorienting and kind of murky colonialist foundations of the conservation movement that i was there to to watch i mean i was i was you know on an eco vacation watching tigers in in the wild and um thinking a lot about man eaters and you know where man eating tigers came from and i had learned that sort of the father of the indian conservation movement was this Anglo-Indian hunter, like literally a great white hunter figure named Jim Corbett, who had been legendary for going into the jungle and killing man-eating tigers at a time when they were really causing a lot of devastation in remote Indian villages. So Corbett is still seen as this heroic figure in India, and Corbett was a heroic figure in many ways. But he was motivated by loyalty to an imperial system whose ecological depredations were probably causing the outbreak of man-eaters in the first place. So Corbett felt that to be a good uh, a good imperialist, he had to protect the villagers. But if the imperial system had never been there in the first place, the villagers wouldn't have been in danger. And in certain ways, you see some of those same patterns playing out in the contemporary conservation movement, which is often, or at least um, which advocates for Indian villagers and villagers themselves will say, is you know based in cities is is much more concerned with like the feelings of urban donors than with the economic and uh, physical realities of the Indian villagers. Yeah. Um, so I think that historical figures can be a way to kind of fold in those kinds of complications and also treat a place in a in a kind of three dimensional way. Yeah. It's in that, thinking about it even more, it seems like in somewhat in all these three cases, these figures in some degree, sort of embody the romance of the place for mm-hmm. you. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, uh, Mishima as well, right? I mean, it's sort of like uh, there might not be sort of that many direct links between him and Sumo, but both kind of drawing on this idea of Japan's ancient traditions and, and so forth. But then also kind of embodying embodying the, the romance of, of these places and, and these phenomena, but also some of their contradictions and complexities and, and um, some of the things that might be disquieting about them as well. Yeah, I think that's right. And also also embodying for me a sort of process of discovery. Um, kind of weirdly, Mishima was, was never a Japanese novelist I had been particularly close to or, or interested in. I, I had always much preferred uh, Kawabata and Tanizaki and Soseki and a, a lot of kind of 20th century Japanese novelists. 
I love and I'd always thought Mishima seemed a little bit well Mishima was just a lot you know you you <laughs> like Mishima yeah. was extra yeah <laughs> and uh, so uh, I was really kind of learning about Mishima while I was there and and reading about Mishima in a way that I guess kind of paralleled the process of learning about sumo that I was I was trying to um, trying to undergo mm-hmm. I think there's a kind of uh, humility that's that's useful in travel writing that makes makes it sort of hard for me to to plan pieces because you know editors like to know a lot in advance about what you're planning to do and what you're what you're thinking for me it's it's hard to know in advance what I'm planning to do and what I'm thinking because it's when I get to the place that I start to learn about it and kind of see where the where the story goes mm-hmm. so yeah people like Jim Corbett and Mishima are kind of little hooks that can pull me forward in that process I guess so how about Lydie Marlin? So she features in the last essay in the book, uh, yes. which is called But Not Like Your Typical Love Story. And that's also, in some ways, it's the closest you come to a traditional memoir territory because mm. it deals it deals in part with the death of your grandparents. So can you tell us a little bit about Lydie Marlin and also how those, that story links up with your own personal story? Yeah, so Lydie Marlin is, is a little different, I guess, from Corbett and um, Mishima in that she's from, or she she was a figure in my hometown. I grew up in a town called Ponca City, Oklahoma, which had been not founded by, but kind of concretized and crystallized by this oil tycoon in the early 20th century named E.W. Marland, who at one time controlled, I think, 10% of the world's petroleum reserves and was one of the richest men in America. He built this giant, I mean, truly giant mansion on the prairie near town, which is now a tourist attraction. I used to visit it all the time as a as a high school kid. So Lydie Marland was his wife's daughter who traveled from Pennsylvania to live with um, her, her aunt and uncle after they became millionaires. Uh, eventually, they, they formally adopted her. And then when her aunt died, she married E.W. Marland, and there was a big scandal. I mean, there were you know New York Times pieces and um, uh, reporters staking out her family home in in Pennsylvania because she had married her adopted father, which was seen as may- maybe not quite like disqualifyingly scandalous for an oil tycoon in in the early twentieth century, but at least uh, at least uncommon enough to be a little creepy and interesting. What happened to Lady Marland was that after E.W. Marland died. She disappeared. She drove away from uh, Ponca City in the early 1950s and didn't come back for 22 years, during which time her brother didn't know where she was. The police didn't know where she was. You know, there was a missing persons case. She was this kind of like, for a little while in America, kind of a celebrated uh, missing persons story. And then in the mid-70s, kind of shortly before I was I was born, she returned to town and now um, she she'd been kind of a famous like flapper beauty in the 1920s, you know, really vivacious and exuberant and um, kind of risque for Oklahoma society. I think when she came back to town in the 1970s, she was this kind of haggard old woman who'd lost all her teeth and walked around town in a long black coat with a scarf round, wrapped around her mouth. Mm. Uh, so she was she was a really um, kind of mystifying and tragic story who through the local legend about E.W. Marland, who of course was the, you know, the father of the town and had a statue outside City Hall, threw it into this really interesting doubt because, you know, was her obvious trouble in the mid-1970s a result of some kind of psychological distress owing to her relationship with this much older and infinitely more powerful man, or you know, we we just really didn't know uh, what the case was, and people didn't know how to think about her. And you know, I remember seeing her when I was I was a little kid driving around town with my grandparents, who lived down the street uh, from the mansion and from the chauffeur's cottage where she continued to live. And I just remember being you know so so fascinated and moved by the sight of her. So when I wrote that that essay, it was a chance to kind of remember growing up in Ponca City and what that was like and also talk about this aspect of the history of the town and try to, you know, I wasn't able to discover much about where she'd gone uh, when she disappeared, but I was able to, you know, read her old diaries and uh, find out as much as I, I could about her. Mm-hmm. So so you you kind of began with the story of Lydie Marland and then, and then that, that sort of prompted the sort of personal reminiscence. Yeah, you that, think? that's right. When mm-hmm. I when I started started writing that essay, I didn't really intend to to include any of the personal stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Yeah, funnily enough, when I when I wrote the the essay immediately before it in the book, which is the royal family one, I thought it was going to be this kind of like rollicking first person travelogue about following Will and Kate around the Yukon Territory, and then it ended up being this very um, kind of serious uh, lyrical piece in which I I don't use the first person singular at all. Yeah. Uh, when I started writing about um, about Ponca City and Lady Marland, I thought it would be um, more more objective, and I I started putting more and more of myself in as I as I went. Yeah, that is a really um, striking and, and effective, I think, juxtaposition. Those last two, those last two pieces, mm-hmm. which are you know so different in their in their tone. So, uh, how, how do you feel about incorporating memoir into their work? Is, is into your work? Is that something you anticipate going further with in the future? Or I don't know. I think it really depends on the it depends on the subject. Mm-hmm. I think there are certainly stories where incorporating yourself as a as a character in the story just helps move the story along and can help it help it be entertaining. I don't really have a um, aside in the like what seems to me kind of frivolous fight about whether it's indulgent to include yourself in an essay or a, a nonfiction story or or whether it's you know fudging the facts not to acknowledge that you're writing from your own perspective mm-hmm. i think both approaches are valid depending on the what the story calls for i don't i don't think i have any strong inclination to do more um really deep autobiographical writing. I think I'm not that interesting. <laughs> um, but I don't know uh, if, if if something comes along that kind of prompts that. I'll certainly consider it. I wanted to ask you about your profile of the Russian animator Yuri Norstein. Yes. So how did you first encounter Norstein's work? I, I'd never heard of him, and I, I don't know how well-known he is in the States. He's He's very famous in Russia and not famous at all anywhere else, I think. I think he has a kind of a small profile in Japan because uh, Miyazaki liked him and has spoken out about his work a few times. But yeah, he's he's not well known outside outside Russia, I think mostly because his heyday really coincided with uh, the Soviet system uh, when the, uh, you know, exportation of his work was kind of strictly controlled. So he wasn't allowed to travel to film festivals. He wasn't allowed to... Um, you know, go on speaking tours or that sort of thing. So in the late 1970s, he became obsessed with the idea of making a film of um, uh, Gogol's short story, The Overcoat. And that uh, effort took over his life and he's been working on it ever since. So after the fall of communism, there was nothing for him to kind of shop around and uh, tour behind. So he he never really developed much of a profile in, in the United States or even uh, Western Europe. I got interested in him because I think I was wasting time online and looking at kind of lists of films that had been lost or films that had never been made, films that had been begun but then like fizzled out in interesting circumstances. And uh, his his version of The Overcoat was was on the list. And it just seemed, you know, totally mesmerizing to me to think of someone spending almost four decades working on one hour-long animated film. So I wanted to find out everything I could about him and eventually was able to get in touch with him and go visit him in Moscow. And is he still actively working on the film? He's, he says he is, and his studio is certainly open. Uh, he's he's now in his mid-70s. I think the film is maybe about halfway complete. So I I guess you would sort of struggle to find anyone in the Russian animation community who truly believes he's he's going to finish it. The um, he he films on an animation machine, which is this sort of elaborate contraption of glass panes on which he can layer background and foreground and then kind of shoot with the camera pointed downward. And certainly when he was demonstrating this machine for me in his studio, um, large clouds of dust <laughs> rose rose poetically from it as he was uh, fiddling with the knobs. But he has assistants who come in every day, and um, he's certainly full of life and full of energy. So I think uh, one of his assistants, Tanya, told me his mind is not like other people's minds, and when he decides to be creative, he goes snip, 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 and suddenly an hour of film is finished. So he could he could go snip, 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 I guess. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Brian, very much for being here. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This was lots of fun. So the book is Impossible Owls. It's essays by Brian Phillips, and it's published by Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. That was LARB senior editor Evan Kinley in conversation with Brian Phillips, author of Impossible Owls. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Thanks for listening.
You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARB Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is William Broughton. Production assistance is provided by William Broughton, Eleanor Duke, Lauren Kinney, and Jake Levins. Our theme song is by composer Imogen Teasley. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their studio in Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the publisher and editor-in-chief of the Los Angeles Review of Books. 